Well, you've had a pretty full day today, I think. Uh, I, all I know is that somebody here was uh, sharing about the end times and they borrowed some of my time. <laughs> this is a familiar story and uh, I've heard that before. But anyway, we're here and now Lawrence has just locked the door so there's nobody to escape. Now, before I get started, uh, some of you just came today, so you weren't here last night. You know, last year, you were part of a huge singing group that sang uh, a bunch of choruses here in, uh, here in Flushing and also in Toronto. And so I put 25 of them together. I had to throw away about five because they were so junky. Uh, it was usually my singing that was bad. But uh, I saved 25 of them as best that I could. And uh, so here they are, and they're yours for the taking. They're on the back table there. So those of you who came tonight and... Uh, you were either in Toronto or you were here, then you, you can hear your voice in here. Especially the little angelic parts over the top. Or, or the sneezing that some of you did over on this side. And uh, things like that. You'll pick it all up there. Please take it in the back there when you get the chance. Now this... Okay. This is an old song. You know this one, right? But it's got a point to it, so I want to sing it together. You know this one? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for oh, the love, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation, and none of you know this song. <laughs> well, I guess it was a little before your time. I noticed Maurice was singing it. He had it down. All the cool guys had it down. <laughs> you know, now why would Paul say, it comes to Romans chapter 8, why would he say, now there is therefore now no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because the enemy is trying to make you feel condemned. And this has to do with your foundation leg called righteousness. If you understand your standing under the blood of Jesus Christ and the gift of righteousness that you have received, there is no condemnation. If that foundation is weak, the enemy comes to say, Yeah, you know, get, ah, you're a rotten individual. Ah, your mother never loved you. Ah, and next thing you know, you feel all condemned. That's why we're going to sing this song a couple more times until you're cool like Maurice. Here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. For the love, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Alright, one more time and we can quit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the love, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From the law of sin and death, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, pluck the magic twanger, please. You're going to have to come around here because we're, you know, we're going we're to switch. So, yeah, really, because if you don't hit this remote right over here, nobody will ever see you. Nobody even knows you're here. Yeah? Okay, there you go. Okay, pluck the magic twanger. All right, go ahead. One more time. There you go. Okay. If any man would come after me, let him turn around, denying himself, drop his plans, and take up his cross, and follow me, follow me. Follow wherever I go. It, you know, this, this is wonderful. So many people over on this side are going like this. What's your problem? Are you saying I'm blocking the way somehow? I just heard this guy in the front row. If any man, la 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 la. All right, let's try it again. Go ahead, crane your necks. Go ahead. I told you you should have drunk your milk. You would have been taller. Ah, here we go. If any man would come after me, let him turn around, deny himself, drop his plan, and take up his cross, and follow me, follow me, follow wherever I go. Switch. Love not the world is passing away. Keep yourself from idols. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So follow me, follow me, follow wherever I go. If any man would come after me, let him turn around, denying himself, drop his plan. And take up this cross and follow me, follow me, follow wherever I go. Love not the world, it's passing away. Keep yourself from idols. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So follow me, follow me, follow wherever I go. I think you know that I love you so. 
So come along and follow me. Notice that? Come along and follow me. I think you know that I love you so. So come along and follow me. Yeah. I think you know that I love you so. So come along. <laughs> Simon didn't say. So come along. Come along. Come along and follow me. <laughs> I cut you. Wow. No, that was very good. You did, you did a good job and nobody saw you. There you go. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All His wonderful passion and purity. Holy Spirit divine, oh my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen. One more time. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All His wonderful passion and purity. Holy Spirit divine, oh my nature divine, till the beauty of Jesus is seen in me. That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, when Jesus lives inside you, teaches you obedience. Obedience brings submission. Submission leads to love. Jesus was in the form of God, but gave all that away. Became a man and suffered death obedient to the Father's way. And when Jesus lives inside you, He teaches you obedience. Obedience brings submission. Submission leads to love. Compassion felt for the multitude could not make him delay. He set his face 
for Jerusalem submitting to the Father's way and when Jesus lives inside you He teaches you obedience Obedience brings submission Submission leads to love Submission leads to Lord, we just know that Your life is inside of us. If we can just get a hold of that life and sense the spark of it, we can discover love and and righteous obedience and the holiness of God and, and all that there is to know about You. Oh, Lord, we pray that we can see the truth of this matter. And as we come to study Your Word tonight, help us, Lord, help us. We want to be... Uh, four square in our foundation, solidly upon our rock of Jesus. We pray, help us, Lord. Do refresh us, Lord. Refresh our bodies. Thank you for the freezing air conditioning and everything that might keep us awake. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts for anything to transpire. So we depend upon you to lead us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, uh, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are just came today, last night I began to share on our living foundation. Our theme scripture is to be rooted and built up in Him. But I, had, as I was praying about it, I felt like I wanted to use the phrase, which is similar to being rooted. Uh, being rooted is just an organic expression where you get roots down into God and these roots begin to spread and give you a firm foundation. But Paul and uh, Jesus also used another term for this establishment, which is so important in a Christian life, and that, and that word is foundation. I love the word that Paul speaks to Timothy, uh, even in a difficult time for Timothy and Paul. He says, no matter what happens, Timothy, a firm foundation of God stands. That's what is needed in Timothy's life, and your life and mine. So we're looking at this strong foundation for living. Jesus said, you know, when you're building your house, if you don't build it on the rock, something will come along. Now the problem with uh, uh, growing up in a Christian church, thank God that you do, most of you have, as you're growing up, sometimes young people get saved and go through Sunday school and it's all sort of in cruise control. And you say to them, are you a Christian? They say, oh yeah. You say, well, how, what happened? Well, I don't know. I was about 10 years old and I asked Jesus to come into my heart one night with my parents. And You see, of course, that's what really happened. But you see, that is when now that Christ is in your life, foundations or roots need to go down in your life so you understand what has happened. Because one day the devil will cackle. 
When you're in the university and somebody says, how, are you, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, one night I invited Jesus into my life. <laughs> Where is that in the Bible? And you'll start to look, you won't find it. Now, you're not really a Christian because He has Jesus into your heart. You're a Christian because Jesus died for your sins and His shed blood was for you. And therefore, you have a free gift of righteousness before God and you're His child. You've been born again by the Holy Spirit. See, there's a lot of reality and truth behind your salvation. So all I'm saying is, at some point you need to get out of cruise control and God needs to build foundations that can stand the testing that goes on in our lives. And the point is that in the Scriptures it's very clear that we have a living foundation. Now that's a little tricky because when we think of foundation, we think of a building and you've got a stable base. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our foundation. In the Old Testament it says God lays in Zion a cornerstone and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Can you see the bottom of the screen? I get the feeling that I'm reading Scriptures and people are going, "Uh, can we put it up just a little higher maybe? Or can we close down the size of the thing so we can lift it up? I don't know what can be done here. Uh, yeah, well, that uh, <laughs> sort of plan B there. I, uh, <laughs> all right, so you can see Jesus is our keystone. No, wait a minute. What? Oh. Uh, there, okay, you see? There was a scripture on the bottom, right? <laughs> All right, there we go. All right. And I mentioned last night that our uh, living foundation consists of four layers. Righteousness, holiness, love, and truth. And the reason that these are our foundation is because God is love, righteousness, light, and holiness. Our foundation is in God. And it's through Jesus Christ that we enter upon that foundation. Now, there is no firmer foundation than God. But to know this God, this living God, is is the pursuit of our lives. And all I am trying to encourage you to do is to pursue God, the whole package. Now, everybody uh, uh, meets God in one of these four ways, and, and I speak as a fool. There's only one God, and He is righteous, love, light, and holy. But having said that, when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he met the righteous one. And all of his works of Phariseeism were dropped as filthy rags. And he accepted by faith a righteousness without any works. That's the first side of God that he met. A righteous God who said, what are you doing, Paul? All your works have availed you nothing. And he realized that Jesus died for him and he was saved by grace having nothing to do with righteousness. He met a righteous God. And when you meet a righteous God, you sense this uh, that he alone can do works through you. But that's why Paul was perhaps one of the most energetic of the apostles. It's because having met a righteous God, the righteous God is a doer. And so he was a doer and a traveler because... The righteous God is the one who fills you with the Holy Spirit and the power to serve and to do good works and to listen and to obey. So knowing the righteous God is knowing the power source of your life. And Paul met that. Now, of course, we know what John met, right? 
When he met God, he became the one whom, whom Jesus loved. He met the God of love first. But you notice in his mature years, who did he get to know? Because, of course, it's all the same God. But John started out here with a God of love. He, his whole message is love. But by the end, he got to a God of light. And John was one of the clearest seers of truth that there was. You see? Because you see him, the same God. But what we call the living God is a God that you meet dynamically. You don't meet, the, you don't meet a blob named G-O-D. You meet a person who's got a certain personality as he confronts you, you see. Now, what happens to a person who meets a holy God? Now, who is the guy of those apostles who met the holy God? Right, Peter. And if you'll read his letters, you'll see how much he emphasizes holiness. How do you know somebody who's met a holy God? How do you know? Because they feel so unworthy, you see. If you meet a righteous God, you feel so unrighteous. If you meet a loving God, you feel so unlovely. See, because you're meeting the real thing. God defines love, righteousness, light, holiness. Whenever you meet the true thing, you realize, yeah, oh my. Like, like Isaiah. Who did Isaiah meet? He looked up and he saw, and he's heard angels say, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You see, you don't meet the holy God without sensing your unworthiness, I'm telling you. Hmm? And, and, and so who, who well, now, uh, who is the apostle who, who, got, who was stabbed by the light? Whoa, this is the truth. I've been looking for this truth. He started pursuing truth. Who? Oh, oh that, you're talking Saul of Tarsus? Oh, you're talking about Paul of Tarsus. Well, you see, you can, you can answer Paul for all four of these. We have a problem there, you see. But the guy is Matthew the bean counter. Matthew said, wow, this all makes sense. Look at this light. And look at this, it goes this way. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And look at his mysteries of the kingdom, his parables. He puts it all together, sews it up. And also Luke. Luke said, oh, I've got to find out that information. I know there's something behind Jesus. I've got to find it. He finds Mary one day. He says, Mary, tell me what's going on. She said, well, you see, an angel came to me. Ha ha! He starts writing it all down. You see, there's some people who come to a God who is light and truth and they have a lifelong uh, uh, burden to understand. You see? Some lifelong burden to be holy. Some lifelong burden to be righteous. Some lifelong burden to be a lot more loving. It's because you've met God, the living God. Don't you ever be ashamed of the fact you feel that there's a, 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 an, an, an un-part of you that has been exposed because you've met the isness of God. Now, if you weren't here last night, you have no idea what I just said. And that's the way it goes. Okay. But, of course, it isn't like we just step onto the living God as our foundation. We can only come to the living God through Jesus Christ. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, that's the light truth side, righteousness, sanctification, that's holiness, redemption, that's love. Jesus has become all these things to us. It's wonderful. In Christ we find all of that. And now our Christian life is built upon the solid rock of Christ, who is our righteousness, sanctification, wisdom, redemption. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And also, in another perspective, I hope you feel this way, 
Because your life is not only built upon Jesus Christ, but your life is now. In terms of the kingdom, your life is under the throne. Wonderful throne. Let me tell you about the throne. It's kind of like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This, this throne is powerful. If you get under the throne, you get zapped automatically. All kind of lightning within the vortex of the quadrilateral reality of God. Ah. What I'm saying is, if you're under the throne and He is Lord, you're receiving the power of a righteous God. He's imparting His holiness to you. You're seeing light and you're having the love of God shed abroad in your heart. There's no place of life like under the throne of God. Some people come and say, Oh, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be filled with the Spirit. And I just say to them, Have you ever been under the throne of God? Because Jesus is the head who's sitting on the throne. Get under the throne and He'll pour out the Spirit on you. Make sense? If you're out in New Jersey and not under His throne, what do you think you're going to get the Spirit? Or Long Island? It's only in Flushing that it all... <laughs> I speak as a fool. You know that's true. Okay. So this is last time we talked about the foundation of righteousness because God is righteous and therefore the foundation is a righteous foundation. We saw last time that God reveals His righteousness in His creation. In the law, He revealed His righteousness. This is what God said in the law. This is the way it works. Don't have any other God but me and I'll bless you, I'll keep you, I'll empower you, I'll, I'll, I'll raise your children. See? If you disobey me, there's consequences. First is this, then is that. You were the head, now you're the tail. You're not under my throne, and now you're getting slapped around. See, he reveals his righteousness. He reveals that he always does right when he created. I mean, look, you know God does things right, right? He created you. Well, <laughs> and uh, but the, the the deepest level, which we'll look at in just a minute, he makes right. You see that poor uh, spider? Yeah, that's our lives before Christ. We're upside down and wiggling, but going nowhere. We have all the apparatus to be a human being. Only trouble is we're upside down, so we're not going anywhere. And then God turns us right side up, and now we're walking. To be made righteous is God when He makes us righteous. God turns us upside down and puts us upon our feet and establishes our going, founding us upon the rock, and therefore we sing, as David says. Right? He took me out of the miry clay, set my feet upon the rock, established my goings. Many will see it and fear and trust in the Lord. That's what David said about it. There it was. Righteousness of God. God revealed that fourth aspect, the fact that He makes right in the cross. And now the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. By His death, with His blood, through faith, at the mercy seat, God did a righteousness that made us right. As it says here in this little verse, maybe too small for you to see, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. We have been made righteous because Jesus became sin for us. This is such a transaction and it's all a gift of righteousness. 
It cannot be earned as we just sang in that song about knowing the Lord. But we're forgiven forever. We're found righteous. Amazing. And by faith, we receive the gift of righteousness. It talks about putting on a robe of righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? You had filthy rags taken off, robe of righteousness put on. You put on the breastplate of righteousness when the enemy attacks your heart and says you're not a believer. And you, have, you bear the fruit of righteousness. As it says in Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit of righteousness. What a wonderful thing. We start bearing fruit in good works with God. And we, and we by God's grace, we become righteous. Now, you see, Christians have this thing. They can't say that. Because our righteousness is not, because we're not saved based on our righteousness. And so Christians have a hard time saying, you know, we're righteous. But actually, God makes us righteous. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ, and it's righteousness in Christ. But still, He makes us righteous, because we're here in this world. How do you know when somebody has been made righteous? They desire a word of righteousness, they want meat, not just milk. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now there's a sign of somebody born again. In this world where people are hungering and thirsting after every kind of conceivable falsehood, you're desiring righteousness. We pursue after righteousness. Listen to that, 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Praise God. Pursuing righteousness and seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Now that means, God, you're my king, you're my commander, I come to you, what would you have me to do? That's one of the first things Paul said on the road to Damascus. Lord, what would you have me to do? You're my king, what's my commandments? <laughs> you remember the famous story of the young preacher, F.B. Meyer, who's an English preacher and he was young, and he met C.T. Studd, who was that great missionary, went out to Africa, and I think F.B. Meyer and Studd stayed in the same house. Don't know what the deal was there, I forget. Anyway, early in the morning, F.B. Meyer hears Studd going back and forth, walking back and forth in his room. So he goes over and taps on the door. He says, uh, Brother Studd, is everything okay? He says, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, I'm just up reading my Bible to see if there's any command God wants to give me today to fulfill for His glory. Now that's somebody who not only pursues righteousness, but somebody who does much good in the kingdom of God. And as I told you last night, it concerns me about evangelical vanilla today because a lot of Christians know nothing about righteousness in their lives or in their works. They're just satisfied to be a lazy, indulgent, self-centered Christian instead of being a servant of God. And so righteousness has to be built as a foundation for us. We all sing that. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the first leg of the fourfold legs of our foundation. Now we want to look at the other three. So, uh, so uh, there we go. Uh, so we want to look at holiness first. Then we'll, Lord willing, look at love. And finally, we'll look at truth. Or in some kind of order like that. Alright, here we go. Now, holiness. Notice it says about God's throne. God sits on His holy throne. What is this holy? And it has something to do with the question we brought up at the end last time. 
we asked, how can righteousness and peace kiss? Now, peace has to do with holiness, and I'll have to explain that to you, but how can righteousness... You see, it looks like these four things are sort of mutually exclusive in a way. It seems like, wow, if I... In pursuing righteousness, I feel so far short. How do I ever have peace in my heart? And so on and so forth. So we'll, we'll see that as we go through this looking at the things. Because here's the deal. The law's righteous demands, that's righteousness, reveal the gulf of God's holiness. When we see the righteousness of God, we realize how holy God is and we see that there's a gulf between us and the holy God. As it says in Isaiah 59, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Now, how can they ever kiss? How can we be made righteous in such a way to have peace with God? So, it's because righteousness and holiness have kissed in Christ. Right? Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Romans 5, 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was 20 years old when I got saved. Now, some of you got saved a lot younger than me, and you're in much better shape than I am. But when I got saved at 20 years old, I'll tell you one thing I experienced immediately. You know what? Peace. Man, I was so guilty. I had committed enough sins to condemn me for sure. But when I got saved... My heart got free from a lot of guilt and shame. And man, I, I never felt so light in my life. I never was really light, but uh, I felt that night I got saved so light because I felt peace with God. The war is over. God is not fighting against me. He loves me. I know it through Jesus. I sense peace with God when I came based on the righteousness of Christ. What a wonderful moment in my life. So now we want to look at holiness because these two are what kissed in this particular example. All right. Of course, God is holy. That's the definition of holiness. Don't look in Webster's Dictionary to find out what, what is holy. Look it up. And Webster will say, eh, it's uh, like when you're religious. Or when you're sanctimonious. Uh, usually holy is used today in context negatively. Oh, there goes holy Joe. Or else holy cow or whatever else. Okay, Here's the definition of holy. God. That's it. He defines holy. This word's used 771 times. The Old Testament, 224 in the New Testament. He defines holy. God does. Only God. And what does holy mean? Totally unique. Or as they say in Portuguese, unique. Holy other. <laughs> they don't say that in Portuguese. <laughs> God is holy. He is unique, holy other. That means there's not another one anything like Him. He is separate from sin completely. He lives above it and away from it. And... Another definition, which you have to remember, you'll understand the Old Testament much more when you understand that holiness is beautiful. It is beautiful. And don't forget, in the end, God defines beautiful. So whenever there was this exclamation, holy, 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 it's another way of saying in heaven, beautiful, 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 look at God. Today, we don't use the word holy as much as we use the 
popular word, which has been overused now, awesome, awesome, awesome. Or as we say in New York, awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, but people use awesome all the time. Oh, look at that shirt. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, well, you see, now we've lost the edge on that word. But there it is. Now, to God, anything holy is beautiful. Now, what happens to a Christian, strange to say, you, who have taste such that you watch, uh, uh, what is this show, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood, you know, shows that come on after the news where they have the latest show and tell gossip about the Lindsay Lohan and all this kind of stuff. And we look at the beautiful girl. We, we look at the, what, the red carpet uh, when the uh, Oscars are on. You know, oh, look at that dress. It's saffron with the thing in the... the, the is it? Now listen, let me give you the eternal definition of what's beautiful. Whatever God thinks is beautiful. And as a Christian, you will start to appreciate what God thinks is beautiful. Things like this. The tabernacle. God thinks this is beautiful. The gold of it, the order of it, the light of it, the perfectness of it, its dimensions. They're so beautiful to God. The holy high priest. Oh, now that's... Uh, I know, that, I, I, that's the holy high priest in Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, but uh, <laughs> God, God loves the real thing. Every one of these things. Listen, God loves this. The Bedellium, the Onyx, the, the Smyrnix, and the uh, Thorax. You know, all of those stones. He, he loves this. It's beautiful, he said. Listen, when God sees a holy woman, now I hope you were listening to Jeff, Jeffrey and Catherine, you guys. Holy women don't necessarily look the same as, uh, you know, Paris Hilton, let's face it. But I tell you who's beautiful, a holy woman of God. That's what it says in the Bible. You can spend all your time trying to fix yourself up, but the most beautiful ones are the holy women of God. And it's the truth. And sir, if you are a Christian and you marry a holy woman of God, you will thank God the rest of your life. Can't beat them. They're the best. Or lifting up holy hands. You know, and I don't lift up hands with a greasy chicken on it, you know. <laughs> Except for tonight. Uh, but uh, lifting up holy hands is beautiful to God. That's beautiful to God. When your hands have been purified through the blood of the Lamb. And now you offer yourself to God. This is an offering, see, like that. God loves that stuff. Don't think He's unusual. His taste is different from us. But our taste will change as our mind is renewed. What God says is beautiful is beautiful. There's always a reason why it's beautiful. And so God makes things beautiful. He holifies things. We don't have the word holifies. What's the word we use? Oh yeah, sanctified. You know, it's just a sanctus, sanctus, sanctus is holy, holy, holy in Latin. Sanctified means makes holy, right? So I use the example of Mount Sinai just to show you how he makes something holy. He starts out with Mount Horeb. Was any team today uh, Mount Horeb? Uh, a bunch of losers. All right, anyway. <laughs> he starts out with Mount Horeb and he chooses it. I don't know. Why would he choose Mount Horeb? There's something he sees in it, you see. And then he separates it. He says, this is no longer just any mountain in the mountain range. This is going to be my mountain. So what did he say to Mo? He said, get the children down from the mountain 
and separate that mountain. Draw a line around that mountain. Don't let the cattle go up on that mountain because now this mountain is being separated from my choice use. Right? Alright? Then having done that, oops, oops, <laughs> I went too fast. Uh, then the third thing he does is he purifies it. So here in the picture we remember how God says circumscribe the mountain and then God came down on the mountain of fire. This is a beautiful picture because what God chooses, He separates. What God separates, He purifies with the fire of His holiness. Wonderful. And then, having done that, why did He purify, go through this whole process, choosing, separating, purifying? So that He could possess it and say, now this is no longer Mount Horeb, it's Mount Sinai. God's holy mountain. Once, once God in Exodus chapter 19 set aside that mountain, it was no longer Mount Horeb to the Jews. It was Mount Sinai, God's holy mountain. Why God's holy mountain? Hmm, it looks like the other mountains, but wait a minute. God chose that mountain. He separated that mountain. He purified that mountain. And He's come to possess that mountain. Now, why do I use that example? Because that's exactly what He wants to do to you. He chose you. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, is it? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him. God loves to say, this is my kid, or this is my son, or this is my mountain, or this is my home, or this is my temple, or these are my people. God loves to say, these are mine. Because what He possesses he doesn't possess it like this. He possesses it to fill it. That's why he possesses something. Then he dwells on it. Just like this scary guy on top of the mountain. <laughs> I mean, when they looked up on top of the mountain, they didn't really see a guy up there sitting on a chair. <laughs> but, but, they, but you notice the people were afraid to go up to say, hey, Mo, you go up and talk to him. Uh, just tell us what to do. We'll do it, you know. Okay. Now, the Bible says that God has sanctified us. He's made us holy. and he, So he started the process now in our life, right? He's chosen us, separating us, sanctifying us. So notice what Paul says to the Corinthian church. I mean, of, of all the churches to say this to, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, san, you know, saints is sanctified, uh, sanctified ones, holy ones, by calling. You're called to be holy. I call you sanctified now through Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, Such were some of you as sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10.10, By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been sanctified. God has made us holy. From the moment we're saved, He's begun this Choosing, separating, purifying, possessing work in our lives. So we're being separated, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, right? Separating, purifying, possessing, making us uniquely beautiful for His Son. Now you see, in the final analysis, all this has to do with His Son. Can I tell you something about Jesus? He loves holy things too, like His dad. So he's looking for a holy bride. Chosen, separated, purified, fully possessed by God. Right? 
And so, it's now the work of the Holy Spirit to do all this. In 1 Peter 1, 2, uh, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, He is sanctifying us, body, soul, spirit. You know these verses. But it's a wonderful reality. You, when you meet the living God, who is a sanctifier, it, it liberates your life. Because you realize He's possessing you and loving you in a jealous way and purifying you and all of this kind of thing. And you are being transformed from glory to glory, even as you're becoming holy. Now the key is to abide in Him who is holy. And how do you abide in Him? Well, as an example, abide in His Word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. You read the Word, it sanctifies you. In daily consecration to the Lord, you are sanctified. Listen. Romans 6.19 Present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification and walking by the Spirit of holiness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now God takes your being made holy very seriously because He wants to present you to His Son. Remember, as we sum up holiness, you're chosen to be holy. You're separated from the common to the unique. And some of you are already very unique. You're purified by the sanctifying fires of the Holy Spirit, by His discipline and His work, and you're possessed and gloriously filled by your Lord. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's so beautiful to see somebody with holiness in their countenance. There's something of purity and clarity and everything there is wonderful. So in, when we talk about a jealous God, you know, in the Bible sometimes, it's dealing with His holiness, you see. It's the combination of His holiness and His love that makes Him jealous. Because He loves you and He wants to possess you and fill you. And so He's jealous for you when you start wandering out into the world, you see, and doing things that are stripping you of your sanctification. The Spirit is working on you 24-7 and God doesn't like it when you start wandering because it, it halts the work, it hinders the progress. And it even stains your testimony. So remember these things. In each of these cases, I just present you a guy who discovered some liberating secret in their lives. And certainly it was the case with John Wesley. At 35 years old, in 1738, John Wesley came back from Georgia. He'd been a missionary there for about a year and a half. Total disaster. Failure. He went to be a missionary to the Indians. And at one point he said, well, I'm being sent as a missionary to the Indians. John Wesley said, well, who will be a missionary to me? He, he was just such a failure. He felt so far from God. When he was back in England with his brother, they started the Oxford Holy Club in Oxford University. And they fasted and prayed and ate tuna fish every day and read the Bible all the time. And they wanted to be holy. They wanted to be pleasing to God. But the more they tried, the further they felt from God. Oh, what a frustration. But then the night came in 1738 as a 35-year-old man, dejected, coming back with his tail between his legs as an unsuccessful missionary. And one night he was in a meeting and his heart was strangely warmed. And it's the fact that he discovered Christ as his sanctification within. Christ was within and as he heard this book being read, something warmed his heart. And our brother John Wesley... Peace flooded his soul for the first time in his Christian life. He grew up in a, in a preacher's home. Undoubtedly a Christian since he was a kid. Had no peace with God. 
because he couldn't settle this matter of holiness. He was so unworthy. But God came to him and flooded his soul. And this man went out and started preaching. And you know, John Wesley was the guy they call the founder of the Methodist Church. But more importantly, he recovered the missing foundation of sanctification to the Reformed churches. Now, Martin Luther had brought justification by faith, as we looked at last night, to the Reformed churches. But most of the Christians in those days knew nothing about a holy life. So they would love Jesus and thank God they were saved, and they went out and got drunk drinking beer. Then John Wesley said, wait a minute, God's a holy God. He wants you to lead a separated life. And all those Reformed people said, huh, what? John Wesley said, yes, and the sanctifier comes within you and gives you the power to live in victory over sin. And John Wesley was a, a preacher who was known as one who brought sanctification to the church. In John Wesley, surely righteousness and peace kissed each other. He found holiness in the indwelling Christ. Oh, if you could read his sermons, you would see how dependent he was on the Christ within as his holiness. This was John Wesley's testimony. A famous man. But he was a Christian who wasn't liberated because he felt so unworthy, so unworthy, until the night he met the Holy One inside of him. Inside of him. Well, we must move on. The foundation of truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, I think all of you have heard by now that the Greek word for truth is also the word for reality. To being led into truth is more than just a knowledge. It's being led into a reality of something. Because you see, ultimately God is the truth. God is the reality. And if we're going to be real people, we have to find this God who is light and he shines upon us. So where does truth begin? Not with knowledge, by the tree of good and evil. Where does truth begin? Truth begins with light. It's light that exposes the truth. Light reveals truth. Truth exposes darkness. And those who love light get saved. It says in John chapter 3, there are those who love the light and those who love darkness. And those who love the light come to the light where they find salvation. And those who walk in the light, as Jesus said, if you follow me, you will learn the truth and the truth will set you free because you discover reality. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is the famous verse that says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So, brothers and sisters, when we meet the God of light, it's quite an overexposure for us because all of us have shadows of darkness. All of us have secrets in our heart. But when the God of light shows up, even as He did to Paul on the road to Damascus, it was overwhelming because there was no secret that was not exposed to this God of life. But the reason is he exposes it is to bring us into reality. Man is living in a dream world of falsehood, a, a world of smoke and mirrors. The world has presented all kinds of beautiful things, but they're all paper mache. But we all believe that because that's all we know. Because we walk as sinful men in darkness. The father of lies, who is the devil himself, has blinded us to God in Christ and to truth itself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If this light ever shines, this light of the gospel, they see who Christ really is. 
And they see that he's the image of God. And when you see that, see somebody says, oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. They really are still in darkness because they haven't seen the truth about Christ, who is the very image of God. You can't tell me what God is like if you can't tell me who Jesus is like or what Jesus is like, you see. And because we live in darkness as sinners, I don't know how much you have realized this in your own life, but the truth of who we are, what life is, what good is, what our problems are, what is important, and all such things, they all have been warped by darkness and lies. When we come to the truth, we suddenly realize what lies we have believed. Most of you believe a lot of lies about yourself. That you're not smart, that you can't make it, that you're worthless, that you're undisciplined, that you're lazy, that you don't like the Bible. There's a whole lot of lies that the enemy have told you. When you get into the light of God, you discover you love God. You love the light. Your heart is for Jesus. You, you, you have great capacity to do and serve and be who you're supposed to be. But He has to shine His light on you. Many Christians are living in shadows. They live in and believe in lies about themselves. Oh, if they could just see in the light. Thank God Jesus came as the light of the world. I've come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And Christ's light raises us from darkness and death. For this reason, the Bible says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, men are living today in a kind of a death of darkness. But if Christ can shine his light on somebody, suddenly there's a life. You say, Aha! I see it. That's the Jesus, the light of our salvation, the light of the world. As this light comes to us, we find a wisdom. What is wisdom? It's refracted light given of a specific circumstance and learning from God what to do. Solomon was full of wisdom because he had a hearing heart that could hear when God would speak. So, God wants to put our whole life on a foundation of truth. And not lies. And uh, Maurice already shared, I am the way and the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit now leads us into all truth on a solid foundation. Truth. If we can live our lives on that foundation, there's so many people not clearly seeing the truth. I mean, it's amazing to come to a conference like this and hear these workshops on the end times, what to do with your time, about all of these various things, wonderful. In the light, we really begin to understand what life is really about. In the light, we understand what's important. In the shadows, we think some things that are so unimportant are very important. You know, we've got things all kind of messed up. And that's why Paul says, when you give yourself to the Lord, be sure you ask Him to renew your mind. Don't be conformed to this world and all of its stereotypes and lies. Be transformed by a renewing of your mind that you might understand what pleases God and how to perfectly do His will. This is walking in the light. And as we are in the light, we become the light of the world. You see, what comes to you in God becomes you and being, as it were. And so we're called children of light, right? 
You know, it, let me put it this way. If you and I could just be who we really are in Christ, our light would shine. He says, So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. If you could just be who you really are, people would say, Wow, what is that? The light shines. And Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood of people for God's own possession. That has to do with His holiness. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why it's so important with your friends and your colleagues, your associates, to testify to them how you were in darkness and you saw the light. Jesus is the light. He turned you around. You share these things. And God uses that light to penetrate into the darkness of the lives of your friends. So I just give an example here. There's many men through the centuries, philosophers, all kinds of people who have been searching for truth. But they're always frustrated in their search because when they seek the light, they find that the approaches of man are warped by vanity and lies. I mean, you know, uh, I, I majored in philosophy for two years of college. And uh, I got into the philosophy department, you know. So you know, all the philosophers, well, they wore a tweed coat. And they all had a little beard and they all smoked a pipe. So I did all of that. I wasn't a Christian. But that's the cool thing. But once I got into the philosophy club, and we started talking about all this stuff, I realized that people were building their philosophies based on what they wanted out of their lives, not out of the truth. Well, this man here was an honest seeker, and he was a stoic philosopher, but he was frustrated in the gap between his philosophical theory and his moral goodness. He was living a sinful life, talking about moral goodness. And he realized what a hypocrite he was. St. Augustine, he was in despair, and then he heard some kids calling. He was out in a courtyard one day, and he heard some kids calling, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he heard the kids, they were like in the next little garden, saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. He says, what, what, what game is that? I don't know if that's a game. And he felt it was God speaking to him. And he picked up the Bible and he, 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 was, he was thinking about these things. And he was at Romans. And basically it said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no place for the flesh. And he was saved. He picked up and read, read the Bible for what these kids were saying. But he became a man to whom discovering the light was his lifelong desire. He became a great thinker and a truth seeker in the ancient church. He was the guy who came up with the famous phrase, our hearts are always restless because there's an empty spot in our hearts until it's filled with God. He was a man who sought for truth and he became a great light of truth and wrote many theological things that helped many people through the ages. Well, truth and love met each other in Augustine's life as the love of Jesus Christ saved him and he saw the light. And what a transformation from being a university scholar to becoming a Christian, which was still to be a nobody in those days. Well, now we come to the foundation of love. Huh? Now, we think we know the God of love. <laughs> the God of love has got a little tougher love than we, we might think. We've come to know 
and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. He doesn't have love. He is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Every aspect of love has some rootage in God and who he is. He is love itself. God, being love, creates out of love. Why did he create Adam and Eve? He needed a couple of gardeners? No, it's because he loved man. Why were you created? He loves you. Everything he does comes from love. His love is powerful, unstoppable, pure in motive. And of course, his beloved is his son. His most loved possession. God is love and there's love between the Son and between the Father. A pure love, a holy love. God is love. Everything about God is love. God's love became flesh in Jesus, as we know. The Word became flesh and He was full of grace and truth. Those two things kissed each other in Jesus. Love and truth. Whenever you met Jesus... He exposed something in you because He was the light of truth. At the same time, He drew you with God's cords of love. It was an amazing thing to meet Jesus. Some people ran away from Him. But many people came to Him because they felt that drawing power of God's love. And of course, His ultimate love we all know is when He died on the cross. It says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We all know John 3.16 and we all know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, you see, that's the God of love. He, he's always giving. When you have a fight with God, He's always trying to think of how He can help you. It's never something about Himself. It's always how He can love you. Uh, you know, the toughest thing is when you're a parent and you have to discipline the child that you love. You see all these little babies around here. You see these little babies are all getting away with murder right now. And you wait a couple of years and they, you know, they're going to have to be disciplined. And man, it is tough. Because your kid looks at, me, at you and says, You have forsaken me. You don't love me anymore. Because you're having to discipline them. Oh, it's tough. But God's love is tough. And He loves us. God, the God of love, comes to capture. Now, do you want to meet the God of love? You know, a lot of people say, Oh, I want to be loved. I just feel like I need love. Oh, if God can only love me, I want to be loved. Most people are afraid of being loved. Because to be loved is to be captured. And God, if, he, if you want God to love you, He's coming to love you. He's going to capture you. So you want Him to? Say, God, I love you. Come and love me. Capture me. Well, He will. You remember what David said? Lord, here's what I'm learning about you. Where can I go from you? Where can I run away? If I run here, you're there. If I run there, you're there. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. I do wrong. You're there. <laughs> I thought you were just there when I did something right. No, I did something wrong. You're right there. I said, oh, hi, David. What? You see, 
God is there to capture, right? And you cannot be separated from His love, right? You are predestined in His love. You remember when God said, Jeremiah, watch you to be my prophet. Jeremiah says, well, but, 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 but I'm too young. I'm still in high school. And uh, besides, I'm Chinese. <laughs> and what did God say to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, listen to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I have been after you a long time. And I'm going to get you. No, that doesn't say that, but you hear what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't want to scare you, but God, you're already, you've already got your foot in the bear trap. You came to a youth conference. You're done. Sometime you should read, if you never have, The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. It's about God who searches for you. You hear His footsteps and you turn around. He's in the shadows, but He's pursuing. And so you run into a place and you think you're safe, but then you hear a gentle knocking at the door. And so you run out of the place, out the window, down the street, and yet you run down the street and you hear some footsteps running behind you. There's no escape from it. God is the Hound of Heaven. And He's out to get you. Because he loves you. He's out for capture. Now listen, God doesn't mess around. He doesn't play footsies. He doesn't play games. He doesn't want to date you for a while and leave you alone. No, no, no. He's out for a bride, for a son. He's serious about this matter of love. And he is running to capture you. <laughs> what happens to somebody? How can you tell somebody's been captured? It's because when you're captured, then you no longer have to say, Oh God, please, fill my need. It's me, me, me. Empty me. I got nothing. Fill me. Please help me. I, I need love. I need help. Please squeeze me. <laughs> but when you've been captured, you say, God, your love is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. You're filling me so full. How can I give it away? Who can I love? Who can I help? And your life becomes... A poured out, the love of God poured forth into our hearts and shed abroad to other people. And we love because He first loved us. We know that. If we do anything but we have not love, what, what good is it? He gives us a new commandment. I loved you, now you love Him. That's it. The love of God constrains us. Oh, well now, who's this guy? <laughs> here's a guy he was so captured by the love of God that God framed him no no, no. There's a picture. Nicholas Zinzendorf was born in 1700 at 17 years old he was a rich entitled count Count Zinzendorf he had his own estate of uh, square miles of a little kingdom and a big mansion and all that kind of stuff at 17 years old, they send you, you graduate from university. He graduated with his bachelor's in science or whatever. At 17 years old from university. And uh, everybody who graduates, you travel for about a year. And you sort of learn, uh, you, you go to the French court. You know, he went to the court of the French king, the, the, the court of the Austrian king, the, uh, the uh, court of the Polish, all, all of these different nobles and stuff. He traveled for a year. 
his parents sending him to gain the worldly wisdom he would need to be a count. And on this trip, he stopped at a particular little museum in a small city in Germany. And there he saw a picture of the suffering Christ. And at the bottom of the picture, it says, I have given my all for you. What have you given for me? And it slammed Zinzendorf's heart. And he stared at the picture. And then the guy came to close the museum and he was still staring at the picture hours. And right then and there he said, God, I give you all my money, all my lands, all my life, all my intelligence, all my heart. That's what I give to you because of what you gave to me. And this man became a testimony of the tremendous power of the love of God. He gave everything he had. And the first thing that came up in, the, in, in 1720, when he was uh, 20 years old, is that there were a lot of uh, Christians who were being persecuted you know, by the Roman Catholic Church back in those days, as you heard from Daniel, as he borrowed my time, uh, that uh, the Holy Roman Empire was going on then. And these uh, czars of the Holy Roman Empire fought anything that wasn't Catholic. So these Protestants were being persecuted. And they were coming up from Czechoslovakia, and they were coming up from, uh, uh, from France, and the, from Italy, and all over the place. And they found refuge. He used his estate, his, countess, his count's estate, as a refuge for uh, persecuted Christians. He gave them a home. They cut down the trees. They made their own homes. They started their own little industries. He helped them. He fed them. He got them together, taught them the Bible, the whole kind of thing. And that began a life of giving everything he had away to help people. Eventually, they formed a, a kind of a, well, they formed a community of about 300 people, which became a church. And uh, so much could be said about it, but let's put it this way. Finally, it came the day when Count Zinzendorf gathered all the people, and they were all fighting. Because there's Italians, and there's French, and there's Czechoslovakians, and there's Germans, and they're all fighting over different things. And Count Zinzendorf went to the meeting on that Sunday and said, you know something, dear brothers? You're fighting because it's my fault. I haven't given you enough love. And he started weeping. And he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of every one of those 300 people. And the people broke down and cried. Because they saw the love of God in our dear brother. And they buried all of their arguments and they became one in the Spirit. And a, what was called the Moravian Revival started on August 13th at 1727, uh, when he was 27 years old. The love of God poured forth from this man's life. He recovered the unity of the Spirit in the church. All of these different groups. Some of them were Reformers. Some of them were Calvinists. Some of them were Anabaptists. Some of them were uh, Huguenots. Some of them were Waldenses. There was all kinds of people there. But on that day that the Spirit fell, they became Christians together. He also recovered, by the way, the compassion of the Great Commission. And out of this little group, they began to send missionaries all over the world with this compassion to share the love of Jesus Christ with other people. Well, what can we say? Our, our time is up. I just want to say that what I'm actually trying to advocate is not you seeking some doctrinal foundations to stand upon, although the truth is very important. 
But what I really would like to say is, I would that you could pursue God. Are you a pursuer of God? You know, it's interesting, sometimes in the Bible it talks about the living God. And whenever I see living God, it always awakens me to the fact that so many people have a God that's not really living. They don't hear from Him. They're not wrestling with Him. He's not capturing Him. He's not working on Him. They're just kind of like, uh, well, God's there, but He's not the living God. So my picture of the living God is, it's the God that you meet when you're under His throne and He's influencing you with His love and His holiness and His righteousness and His truth. And so I just finish by just saying these four things. Dear brothers and sisters, pursue a righteous God. He is your doing power. Do you want to serve? Do you want to do the works that He's prepared for you? Do you want to be empowered to serve? You need to meet the righteous God. He does things right. He will teach you how to do things right. Take His yoke upon you and learn from Him. He wants you to learn. Pursue a righteous God. Say, God, I want to serve you, but I want to do it right. Not just my own thing. God loves those who pursue righteousness. Don't you ever be afraid to know the God of righteousness. Because He does things right. Pursue a righteous God. I'm going to ask you to pursue a holy God. This is a fearful thing. He is an awesome God, totally other than us. And many, when they see Him, fall down because His holiness is so overwhelming. But you know what? The whole deal is this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to be who you're supposed to be in Christ Jesus, you need to meet the holy God. He's the only one who can uniquify you and make you beautiful. Otherwise, you just act like everybody else. You know, you sort of conform to this or that, what you think a Christian might be or something. Why don't you just be unique? And be a pursuer of the Holy One. I don't know in the history of the church, of course I don't know everything that happened, but those who pursued a holy God, they became beautiful. There's something about it is beautiful. God sanctifies those who would pursue Him. And of course I also want you to pursue the God of light. Many of you have questions. <laughs> so you go to the, some... Uh, elder or you go to somebody or maybe even mom and dad with all your questions but you know what the God of light is your answer you ever gone to God with a question and said now God I got my Bible here I I don't understand pursue him oh God I, I want please you're the God of light I want to fellowship with you about this please if there's any darkness expose it I'll I'll ask forgiveness I want to walk in the light. I want to know the truth. I want wisdom. I don't know what to do. I'm pressed between this. I'm pressed between that. I don't know. You see, God's just waiting for you to be pressed in so you'll look up. Pursue a God of light. He is there to enlighten us. And of course, need I say, pursue the God of love. Because (laughs) here's the thing we find. As Augustine said, your heart is always restless because it can only find its rest in God. Pursue the God of love. And what do you discover? He's your first love. And you knew it from the moment you were saved. You knew He was your first love, but you left and pursued other things. Get back to pursuing the God of love. Because God is the one who teaches us how to love others. God is the one who, through His life, loves others through us. 
by the love of God shed abroad from our hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, every one of you who found the living God have experienced something of God in these dimensions. But all I'm saying is that this is the very important crux and foundation of your life. In your desire, the Lord will try to keep you in a balance under these four legs of His throne. The enemy sometimes tries to do you in. Because you're pursuing truth, he takes you out to error. Because you're pursuing light, he takes you out to spiritism. Because you're pursuing righteousness, he takes you out to works. Because you're pursuing love and you desire love, he takes you out into some kind of wrong, fleshly and emotional kind of love. The enemy would try to do that. The church always suffers when they lose one of the legs of the foundation. And I have asked that the Lord would make you a generation who can rebuild the foundations of the church. Some churches are righteous. They don't know anything about love. They're loveless people. Some churches are loving churches, but they have no righteousness. You understand what I'm saying? Some churches are very weak in holiness, and so on and so forth. Some churches have churches... People never hear the light. They never hear the, the sanctifying word. They never get any meat. It's always eh, just some little stuff. Boy, may the Lord restore these foundations in the church in these last days by a generation of people who know the God who is the foundation of their life. This is our way forward in these last days. I'll just bow for a word of prayer. Lord, I don't know what to say because in some ways this is just information. But I pray in some wonderful way that you would capture the hearts of these dear ones who are here and give them a desire to pursue the living God. Give them the faith to believe that if they seek you, they will find you. And then the faith to pursue. Oh, how you long for those whose hearts are surely fixed on you, wholly devoted to you. I pray for those here who would confess honestly that they've wandered an awful lot, wasted a lot of time, been involved in unrighteousness, unholiness, unloving, and dark things. Oh Lord, by your precious blood, as they confess these sins before the living God, do restore them to their first love and to a free pursuit, a discovery higher and higher of the living God. Oh Lord, don't allow us to wallow in the, down in the, some kind of shadows when we can walk in the light with our living God. Do help us, Lord, together. We're so perplexed by the complexity of things around us. But Lord, you are the life that we need. Where else can we go? We come to run after you, our beloved, that we might lay hold of the truth and live under those foundations. Help us, Lord, each one here. Thank you for everyone's coming do sanctify their hearts to be true pursuers of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.